It's an honor to be speaking to you again at Faith and Law. I just want to give a quick introduction to the book for the least of these. It was a book that was published in 2015 as the first of three major works that uh, Institute for Faith Work and Economics produced. We chose this to be the first book because we deeply believe that the poor are important to address since there's so many biblical passages there and that markets are the best way to help the poor. And we want to uh, really address three main things in the book. First of all, the first third of the book deals with the biblical perspective on poverty. And the second third of the book deals with economic aspects of poverty. And the last third of the book deals with practical application of issues related to poverty. So we think it's uh, an important book. The other two books we had are Counting the Cost, Christian Perspectives on Capitalism, that looks at moral objections to capitalism. The third major book we had was called Set Free, Restoring Religious Freedom for All. But my topic today is the importance of the image of God for dealing with the poor. And I've heard it's good to say what you're going to say, then say it, then say what you said. So what I'm going to say is that, you, that we need to see the poor as made in the image of God. And that's very important for us as a foundational issue. And we also need the poor to see themselves as made in the image of God. I think the image of God is an important foundational concept for ourselves and for how we view the poor. In Genesis 1, 26 and 28, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's important here to note that our worth here is connected uh, with our creator. If God is of great worth, and he's made us in his image, then we also are of great worth. There's a, a, a value and worth and dignity that's associated with us or given to us that no one can take away from us because it's rooted not in us, but on in our creator, making us in his image and likeness. There's another passage in Genesis 9, 6 that says, Whoso sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Now, this is a passage that's often used in the issue of capital punishment. We're not going to discuss that here, but it does seem to say that to attack an image bearer of God is so serious because that person is made in the image of God. In a way, to attack someone, an image bearer, is to attack the creator. So it's a very serious thing to either kill somebody that's made in the image of God, or I would say abuse them in any way to take life away from them, even in a, a spiritual sense. Uh, so it also is important to note that people are made in the image of God uh, after the fall. There's another passage in James 3, 9 that says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. That there's a relationship, uh, say, for instance, we can think about in church, if we go in and worship God on Sunday morning and we bless him and praise him and give thanks to him and walk out the next moment and either look down on or curse somebody that's made in the image of God. What hypocrisy, what inconsistency to uh, say that we value God and then to depreciate or to curse his image. That's very uh, inconsistent. So the way we treat people is an indication of how we value God, what worth we give to God. That's an important connection. C.S. Lewis says, 
There are no ordinary people. You've never met a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art civilizations, what are they? They are to our life as the life of a gnat. Uh, there's a sense in which even the most insignificant person, even the most unattractive person, even the person that's the poorest and less uh, noticeable than others are not ordinary people. They are not mere mortals, and therefore they deserve to be taken seriously. Uh, there's also, uh, even after the fall, people are fallen and yet redeemed. Uh, some people tend to emphasize sinfulness without emphasizing human dignity and God's grace. I was brought up in such a church where it seemed to indicate or talk very often about sinfulness or about judgment and didn't place equal emphasis on dignity and God's grace. There are others, though, that focus on dignity and self-worth, and I could name such preachers, and don't uh, really mention sinfulness. And both of these are really held clearly in Scripture. And I think it's important to view ourselves in light of God's perspective on us, that we, even though we are sinners, we look at ourselves as image bearers of God, and if we're believers, as covered by God's grace. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul didn't mention his sin without mentioning God's grace. He says, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Paul had had a very checkered past where he had persecuted Christians and even had orchestrated or been in approving, in approving the killing of Christians. He says, for I'm the least of the apostles, do not even deserve to be called an apostle, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. So that uh, we, he, meet, he doesn't mention his sin without talking about God's grace. Also in 1 Timothy 1 verse 16, Paul calls himself the foremost of sinners, but then immediately says, yet for this reason I found mercy that in me Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. Uh, so no matter what we've done, what our, no matter what our past is, our past looks differently in light of God's grace. God's grace is not in vain, and we were made in the image of God. So no matter how broken someone is, that's poor, that the image of God remains. And no matter what they've done in the past, if they're a believer, they're also covered by God's grace, and we need to see them uh, accordingly. Uh, there's also, the second main point I want to make is that the poor need to see themselves as made in God's image. Uh, there's often uh, an idea that the poor tend to really be driven to despair by their poverty. Brian Fickard, in a classic book, When Helping Hurts, says this, poor people typically talk in terms of shame, inferiority, powerlessness, humiliation, fear, hopelessness, depression, social, social isolation, and voicelessness. Uh, there's also a uh, illustration in Peter Greer's chapter. He's the president of Hope International. Uh, he was in uh, Rwanda, and they were interviewing a group of 20 or 25 people that were poor there in Rwanda, and asking them, what does poverty mean to you? And here are the answers in order, in the order in which they were given. Poverty is an empty heart, not knowing your strength and ability, not being able to make progress, isolation, no hope or belief in yourself, 
knowing you can't take care of your family, broken relationships, not knowing God, not having basic things to eat, not having money. Poverty is a consequence of not sharing, a lack of good thoughts. In those 10 characteristics that people use to describe poverty, only one is not having money. Now, not having money is an important thing. You need to be able to provide for people's physical needs. But there's a lot more around the issue of poverty that you need to address. There's an emotional issue that needs to be addressed by getting people to see their own worth, value, and dignity, and be able to have the confidence to be able to move forward and find their gifts and use it in the society. Uh, there's another illustration in the last chapter of, for the least of these, where Peter Greer has a chapter called Stop Helping Us. And he tells the story of a church in, in Russia that was given a regular donations by a church in America. And they would give a lot of uh, help. They would give food and clothes and materials and all kinds of things to be able to help that church and give it on a regular basis. And that was a good thing. It really helped the people that were there in that church in Russia. But after a while, the pastor started to notice that, that people were not really working for themselves. They were not trying to produce opportunities, not using their own creativity and initiative. In the same way, they were becoming dependent or really just waiting for the gifts from the American church to come. And after a while, he, he said to the church, well, thank you for your gifts, but stop helping us. It's actually hurting us more than helping us. It's better to perhaps give us some money, and the church did give them some money, to be able to start a business. And then all the people in the church joined that business, and they were able to provide for themselves and for their own needs. And that was a really encouraging thing. There's a danger that traditional charity can lead to dependence. There's a classic uh, film called Poverty, Inc. that is on uh, YouTube. I, I believe you can play it there or you can get it on Amazon or various other places. It's a classic uh, film that calls for a new approach to poverty. But there's a quote uh, in this chapter called Stop Helping Us by Bob Lupton from his book, Toxic Charity. It goes like this. Give once and you elicit appreciation. Give twice and you create anticipation. Give three times and you create expectation. Give four times and it becomes entitlement. Give five times and you've established dependency. So I would say that, that traditional charity can only be a temporary fix for the poor. Obviously in emergency situations like the recent hurricane, you just need to come in and provide whatever people need. But as far as a long-term uh, perspective, you need to be able to empower people to be able to use their creative gifts to unfold the potential of the creation around them. Uh, so just in conclusion, I'll just sum up my message. We need to see the poor as made in the image of God. And then secondly, we need to help the poor to see themselves as made in the image of God and all that that involves. So I'll turn it over to Anne at this point and be glad to take any questions later on. Thank you. So uh, thank you, Art. I think that um, what I want to try to do here in a short uh, order and then happy to talk more about it later is to talk about this connection between income inequality and poverty. And obviously, if you're um, 
you know, you, you think about income inequality as a very important political issue. It's an important social issue. I think it's a cultural issue. And I don't think that that is going away anytime soon. Of course, it's not a new issue. But some of the proposals and some of the policy initiatives around income inequality, I think, um, are destined to not accomplish their objectives. And I think it's because some of the issues uh, are confused. So one of the first things that I want to say, and this is kind of the way I've titled it, income inequality is certainly a thing. It's a phenomenon that happens. And of course, what the burden is upon us to determine how it comes about and then we can understand if it's a good thing, a bad thing, a thing that needs to be corrected. And, and economics will help us understand if it is something that can be corrected at all through policy. So it's not just enough to, to desire to change things, but we must understand what levers we have at our disposal. And certainly policy is not the only lever that we have. Um, but I want to start out by saying that our goal is human flourishing. Poverty, for all the reasons that Art has outlined, is um, abysmal to us. We've made a lot of progress. There's a lot more work that needs to be done. But I think one of the biggest problems in modern, especially in the United States, income inequality conversations are that we tend to lump income inequality and poverty together in the same uh, conversation. And I think that that is a mistake. There's a difference between income inequality and poverty. And so that's what I want to tie, kind of lead us through today. Again, the, the goal here is human flourishing. And we want to understand that in a biblical sense not in a modern cultural sense. Um, I think a modern cultural definition of flourishing would say anything that makes you happy at any moment. So that's clearly not what we're talking about. Um, if we worked with Jonathan Pennington, a theologian, to, um, to create some research on what biblical flourishing looks like, and of course you can find that on IFWI's website, but here's just a small excerpt. He talks about shalom. When you think about shalom, you probably in your mind translate to that to the word peace. And what Pennington would say, and I believe that him to be correct, is that that is a narrow and insufficient definition of the true conception of shalom. He describes it this way, shalom is human health and wholeness, resulting in strength, fertility, and longevity. The vision of shalom is at the core of God's redeeming work. So God's redeeming work that is carried out through us and in his creation through his holy spirit while we are here on the earth is to reweave and restore shalom and shalom if you look at these things these characteristics shalom is human health wholeness strength longevity and i'm going to show you some graphs at the end um, but really if you look at the long uh, record of human history we've not had uh, longevity. And we've had lots of problems with fertility in terms of short lifespans and diseases and things like this. So one of the things that kind of falls out of his research here is that part of shalom is material well-being. So the point of view that we're going to come at this with today is that material wealth is not evil. Um, it can be used for evil purposes. And if it takes over your heart as your heart's sole desire, then of course it's going to distort all of your objectives and all of your incentives and, and um, preferences. And of course, that is sinful. But wealth in and of itself, uh, material prosperity is not sinful. But there's a lot of qualifications that we want to, to look at around that. And so obviously, I'm an economist. So the way that I'm going to come at some of these ideas today is to take what art has laid out as the foundation for human dignity and human creativity 
And then to layer in that both some economic realities, but also some um, a, a way for us to understand kind of what role policy might play, how inequality and poverty are social problems. They are not at their heart political problems. And so we need to change our hearts and minds before we can ever expect that policy is just going to be able to fix some of these things. And so when I'm talking to my students, and I think that this is just something that's worth repeating to every you know, to, to everyone is that there are economic realities that govern the world. I think if you look carefully, you see that those economic realities fall right out of God's creation, out of his design, out of his desires. So I really encourage people to go back through Genesis and really spend some time, especially in chapter one um, and chapter two, you see a lot about God's intentions for us, for his creation and the order uh, by which he, he created uh, the universe. And so if we ignore these economic realities, we're going to kind of be running uphill, right? We're not going to solve the problems we seek to solve because we're going to be running against God's created order. So what are, and these are just economic realities, of course, those rea uh, realities of physics and chemistry and biology. So I'm just going to speak to these economic realities. But if, again, if we ignore those, we do so at our peril and potentially we could create some bad unintended consequences in trying to do good. And so Art just talked about that when he talked about dependency, which is something when we're thinking about the poor, we want to avoid, we want to empower people to live into their human creativity. So, you know, kind of some of the basic things we think about as economists and the assumptions that we make that I think, like I said, reconcile themselves with God's created order is that we live in a world of scarce resources and those scarce resources have lots of things they can be directed towards. And those things compete against each other. And so we have to ration, we have to choose, we have to make trade-offs. Uh, if you ever took an economic class, your professor might've said there's no free lunch. And so you know, we really want to understand that there's no magic policy wand that we can wave and just make the problems go away, that we are always going to have to make trade-offs. Uh, and so my professor always said, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. And so the quest of policy is potentially, can it get us to better outcomes? But it's never utopian. It can't just wash all the problems away. Why economists like markets is because markets use prices to help us make those allocation decisions. And they do so very effectively. And so, you know, prices are a way through market activity where we kind of understand how to best use scarce resources in the moment, but we're never assuming away the costs. We're always going to incorporate the costs into our calculus in terms of what to do. And of course, and Art just really talked about this, uh, I think in very clear ways, incentives matter. Human beings respond to incentives. So if we incentivize dependency, if we disincentivize or discourage work, if we discourage marriage, all of these things, are people are going to respond to them. So we need to be careful, again, about the policy levers we use when we're targeting the problems we perceive. And then, of course, you know, this, this is an economic reality, but to me, this is so clearly coming right out of Scripture, which is God created us in unique ways. Um, we're all bringing different things to the table. And when we focus on our gifts, we are better able to serve each other. And we do this in lots of spheres. We do it through the marketplace. We do it through law. We do it through the church. We do it through philanthropy. So there's a lot of different sets of institutions by which human beings can unleash their gifts and talents and skills. But what I would say, and again, if you go back to Genesis, what you see is that 
God's mandate for us is to do that. We are to work to the, a bit to, you know, to the extent that we're able and working both makes contributions to the common good and in the market where you can buy and sell labor, right? This also grows our income and our material well-being. When we do that and others are able to do that, that's part of the alleviation of poverty that Art was talking about. So poverty is about being excluded from productive institutions that empower people to use their gifts in creative ways. So, uh, so e economists think a lot about entrepreneurship and the role of entrepreneurship in economic growth and economic development. And I don't mean, you know, Bill Gates entrepreneurship, not everybody's Bill Gates and that's okay, but we can all be entrepreneurs even in our own roles, even if we're not starting an independent business. So I want us to take this idea of entrepreneurship in a very broad way. We can all be creative in our roles, even if we're not starting a business. And that's God's mandate, right? So Genesis 2.15, God tells us he put us in the garden to work it and care for it. Working it means cultivating it, changing it, applying our creativity to it. And so part of thinking about income inequality is it requires that we think about work. And it requires that us to think about, are there people who are not empowered, enabled to use their creative abilities to make these positive contributions? And where people are unable through physical or mental limitation, we clearly have a responsibility to aid them. We clearly have a responsibility to help in a time of crisis. And that crisis, of course, can affect your incomes. Um, so thinking about living through a pandemic, a lot of people um, lost their jobs. Unemployment in the spring was the highest it's been since the Great Depression. That calls for action. Uh, so income inequality in that short term time period is going to change. So when we're thinking about a complex topic like income inequality, again, one of the things I want us to focus on is the source of that inequality. And that will help us understand what we need to fix, what we can fix. Okay. So based on those economic realities, I think that allows us as Christians who are thinking like economists to ask different sets of questions. And that's important for getting to the right policy outcomes. And you know, when I think about income inequality, there's nothing new under the sun. So this kind of the battle between the rich and the poor is as old as time. There's nothing new about it. I believe that Occupy Wall Street movement that happens in the face of the financial crisis, which of course disrupted the entire economy, I think brings a resurgence and kind of breathes new life to this debate about the rich and the poor, um, what the rich are responsible for. Is it okay to be rich? I think we have all these questions. And I think as we roll into a presidential year, um, a presidential election, we are going to see as we get closer to that, that these ideas um, that came out uh, are, really haven't gone away um, and they will get empowered. So I do think that we need to understand um, what are we talking about here? And so I want to engage you in a small thought experiment. Before I do that, I want to tell you a little bit about, and this is the most technical I'll be, I promise, but there's something called the Gini coefficient or the Gini score. And this is how we check income inequality and give it a number. So I, what, all you really need to know is that in a country that has um, a Gini score of one, that is perfect income inequality. It would mean that one person has all the income and everybody else has nothing. A Gini score of zero means that everybody has the exact same income. 
I would make a suggestion to us that neither of those polar extremes are desirable. If, it's obvious that if one person has all the income and nobody else has any that we're you know, in a kind of problematic type of society because we're going to be fighting each other to try to get a piece of that pie. But I would argue that maybe perfect income equality is not um, desirable either because again, we have different gifts, talents, abilities. The market is gonna reward those in different ways and so this is where our concern for the poor needs to be um, one conversation and our concern about income inequality and you know, how big of a problem is it, I think is an entirely separate conversation. So what we do is we use tax, um, tax returns and we look at household income. And then we try to kind of come up with this Gini score. Remember one means one group has all the income and, or one household and everybody has nothing and then a Gini of zero has a perfect equality. So this is a hypothetical example that I'm gonna construct here. We have country A, their Gini score is 0.278. And we have country B, and their Gini score is 0.45. And you don't have to raise your hands or anything, but what I would want you to think about is based on having no other information at your fingertips, just thinking about income inequality as the metric, which country would you prefer to live in? And you know, when I kind of survey people, uh, about these two numbers, uh, a lot of people say 0.278 because, again, I asked you, you know, you don't know anything else about this country. So if you're just looking at the Gini score, maybe you think more equality is better and 0.278 is a little bit more equal than 0.457. Well, the non-hypothetical part of this discussion is that these are real Gini scores for real countries. So um, Afghanistan today has a Gini score of 0.278 and the United States has a Gini score of 0.457. So in the United States, as we think about income distribution, it is less equal than the income distribution held by citizens in Afghanistan. Now, you know a lot more about those countries just by me giving you more information than the Gini score. And I would, you know, I've never had somebody who raised their hand on 0.278 stick with that after they learned that the answer was Afghanistan, because people are not rushing to Afghanistan because there's more income equality. In fact, people try to leave Afghanistan, and there's been great efforts by the United States to try to help Afghanistan become a more flourishing, more peaceful society. So I guess my point here is that when we just use this data to help guide us in terms of what to do, I think we're missing a lot of the nuance. I think we're missing a lot of the pieces that as Christians who care about shalom and reweaving shalom, we would need to know. So kind of some of the thought questions I have are, you know, what we really need to ask are, how are people actually doing, right? What is it like to be in the bottom of the income distribution? Well, the answer to that question is far different if you live in the United States than if you live in Afghanistan. If you live in the poorest of the poor in Afghanistan, your life is far worse materially and in many other dimensions than if you live in the bottom in income quintile in the United States. It's because the United States has a lot of economic freedom and Afghanistan has almost none. The other thing we wanna look at as economists, and again, the genie doesn't tell us this, is what are the consumption capabilities of the poor? What that means is, what can the poor consume? What can they buy with their incomes? So we're never ever really just, we never wanna just look at income. We wanna look at what does our income get us? Is our income, does it empower us to feed our families, to get indoor plumbing, to send our kids to school, 
to buy groceries, to go visit the doctor, to get new tires on your car when they you know, need replacing. These are the things we wanna look at. So that, you know, what, what does your income get you? So again, we're always gonna to wanna to look at not just income, but reconciled against your purchasing power. And then I think a really important question that honestly gets left out of this debate all the time is what would it take to no longer be, be poor, to be in the bottom of the income distribution? What does that look like? How easy is it to get out of that income quintile? And you know, an example that I think about from my own life is that when I was 15, I had to get a permit to work. I'm, I live in Virginia now, I'm from Virginia. So you had to get a, a working permit. I worked at Baskin Robbins and I scooped ice cream on a Friday night and I thought it was the best thing ever because I could buy the jeans you know, that my parents wouldn't buy for me or whatever because they were too expensive. And, you know, I made $3 an hour or whatever I made, $5, whatever I made. It was nothing. Um, but I didn't have any skill. I didn't have any work experience. I had low levels, not even a high school diploma yet. And so I started right at the bottom income quintile. But because I live in a society with lots of economic freedom, I had opportunities to grow my income over time. And that's what it looks like. You know, those are the kind of questions we want to ask when we say, how hard is that for people in different societies? But we could ask it across the United States, right? We could say, you know, do people get stuck in poverty traps in different counties and different states and different districts? And why is it so hard for them to get out? So it's not enough to just look at income inequality. We also need to look at income mobility. So again, I apologize, I'm an economist. I have to use some graphs, but this is a graph of income inequality um, in the United States over time. And if you look at the ranking that I showed you, it goes between zero and one. I mean, we've hovered between 0.4 and 0.5. And so um, it went through to a peak at the Great Depression, which you would anticipate, and then it kind of went down. And as you see from the 80s on, it has slowly been creeping up closer to 0.5. So it's not an egregious, volatile shift, which I think some of the narrative is, is what is told, that it's this volatile shift. It's really radically increasing. I think it's incrementally increasing, and that could be a problem. But we'll never know if it's a problem or not if we're not really understanding what's going on in, in these other kind of macroeconomic dynamics that we could look at. So one of the things I want to share is this survey that was done. These surveys are very hard to do, so there's only been a few done. So this is from 2007. But the Treasury Department looked at income mobility. And again, I think this is where we need to put our focus. Income inequality is a static snapshot at one point in time that tells you, you know, how income is spread out over society. But what we really want to know is over the longer run, do people move and grow their income or are most people trapped? Because if most people are trapped at the bottom and the rich are just doing fine and getting richer, then we do have problems. We have a society that's not dynamic and it doesn't support a growing and robust middle class. And if you look at what we see here, it's really fascinating because people in the lowest income quintile, look at this, 90% moved out of the lowest income quintile in just nine years. Now, could that be better? Could it be faster? Absolutely. It absolutely could, but this is promising. This is promising because it shows us that it is a not, it's not a stagnant income society that we live in. And I would argue to you, and again, I'm using extremes. There's lots of countries that would be in the middle. But a country like Afghanistan, you're born poor, you die poor, you live a short life of ex oppression, exploitation, et cetera. Uh, there are very clear problems with that. So in Afghanistan, the problem is not income inequality. The problem is poverty. 
In the United States, uh, you know, we have a poverty problem, but nothing compared to what Afghanistan has. So I think for Christians called to action, we need to be much more nuanced about the problem and say, hey, for the people that aren't in that 90%, that aren't moving through income quintiles as quickly as they possibly could, what can we do to help them? And helping them, going back to Art's comments, is not just day after day, month after month, year after year, giving them uh, stimulus checks, if you want to call it that, subsidies that allow them to not work. So, and I'm not making claims that everybody's able to work, but for those who are, our job as Christians in the public square is to empower them to do that. And I think that this is a very difficult thing because we have to walk alongside people. We have to treat them as individuals. And poverty programs are often very generic, especially at the higher levels of government. Because uh, you have to kind of craft a one-size-fits-all policy. And this is my concern about policies that attempt to address income inequality. They're one-size-fits-all. They assume that the rich are taking income from the poor. But here's, here's a graph that shows global inequality trends over time. And what I'll tell you is that look at this orange line here, what you see. This is, you know, 2,000 years of human history. Most of, for most people over most of, you know, the biggest part of human history, they've lived at almost zero in terms of income, between one and three dollars a day. It wasn't until 1900 uh, that average per capita GDP was $1,000 per person per year. It took us till 1900 to get there. And then look at that, we call this the hockey stick graph. So incomes are growing globally at phenomenal rates. I mean, it's honestly, but even the World Bank is surprised because we are eradicating poverty. And when you eradicate poverty and you free people up through economic and political freedom to use their gifts, then you are going to have more inequality. But the inequality is often because people have used their gifts in very significant ways to solve big problems, right? When we think about, you know, healthcare, curing cancer, um, all these types of things, those are going to warrant very large incomes. And the last thing I'll say, and I think there's an entirely different conversation about this, but you know, God tells us to be fruitful and multiply. You see this in Genesis. And what this graph shows us, if you look at income inequality over time, combined with population growth over time, I think this is, should give us hope that as Christians, we have the corner on the truth here, which is that human beings are not the problem. They are the solution to the world's problems. Human beings need to be empowered to unleash their creativity. So what do you see in this graph? You see population is growing at the same rate that income is growing globally. What this means is that humans are not bad for the planet, but good for the planet. Of course, we know that because God created us. But I think when we see this, we see income inequality is not necessarily an evil that needs to be you know, corrected through redistribution of income, but rather what we need to focus on are caring for the poor and empowering people to use their gifts and make contributions to the, to the common good.